0: This is The Guardian.
1: Today, a major leak reveals how one of the world's largest banks became a haven for dirty money. The Bank Credit Suisse, in the Swiss city of Zurich, holds billions of dollars billions of secrets.
0: This vault lays uh, in the groundwater of Zurich. It is uh, 18 feet below uh, lake level. This vault has uh, 3,500 safes. Uh, We have it in 10 different sizes. The smallest is five centimeters high. The biggest looks like a closet.
1: (laughs) The bank takes pride in the security of its vaults. And that security and discretion is part of what makes it so attractive to its hundreds of thousands of clients around the world. But what if someone started thinking that some of these secrets shouldn't be secrets at all?
0: I didn't know what we were getting into. It's not often that you get dumped with this kind of data. And on top of that, to get it from a Swiss bank, and let alone the second largest in the country. It was exciting, and honestly, it was a bit nerve-wracking.
1: Guardian banking correspondent Kalina Makortov and investigative reporter David Pegg have been making their way through a giant trove of leaked data.
2: We're looking at tens of thousands of accounts, we can't say exactly how many, with funds totaling over 100 billion Swiss francs. An enormous, enormous sum of money.
1: The words Swiss bank conjure images of fabulous wealth, glamour, intrigue.
0: So good of you to come see me, Mr Bond, particularly on such short notice. If you can't trust a Swiss banker, what's the world come to?
1: It's not just the movies. In Switzerland, banking secrecy is part of the culture. It's a way of life.
0: You know, you have to think about the fact that the tradition of banking secrecy has effectively been around in Switzerland Since the early 1700s, this is something that is deeply entrenched in the way they think about that industry, about the profession more broadly. I think it speaks to how much the Swiss economy relies on a bank like this and how culturally that affects the way you look at the world.
1: Breaking that secrecy has serious consequences, no matter why you do it, no matter what you want the public to know.
2: Switzerland has a very specific law called Article 47, which effectively criminalizes the disclosure of information from a bank. This law is very rigidly drawn. So rigidly drawn, in fact, that there is an obligation for Swiss authorities to begin investigating that at the moment there is a leak. The law makes no real provision for protection of journalism, protection of whistleblowing, and certainly not for the provision of any information in the public interest.
1: In short, if either of you say too much... Someone, this whistleblower, could go to jail. That's correct. Switzerland's second largest bank has been embroiled in scandals before. Each time, Credit Suisse has promised to do better. But a massive new leak to the German newspaper Suddeutsche Zeitung, shared with a consortium of media outlets including The Guardian, suggests that wrongdoing goes much deeper than anyone knew. It reveals the way the bank's accounts have been used by clients involved in torture, drug trafficking, money laundering, corruption and other serious crimes for decades. For Switzerland, secrecy is good business. For the developing world in particular, it's allowed billions of dollars in untaxed wealth and stolen money to be hidden away where no one could know about it, until today. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, the dirty secrets of one of Switzerland's largest banks and a whistleblower's challenge to the Swiss people to do something about it. Kalina, you're about to tell us some pretty hair-raising details about who was allowed to bank with Credit Suisse, but to understand how we got here, I think we have to understand what makes Switzerland's banking system so unique, and that's their extreme secrecy laws. So tell me about those and how they came about.
0: It was around the turn of the 20th century that countries like France started introducing far more stringent tax rules, specifically taxes on wealth and inheritance that sent families running to see where they could store their wealth instead across the border. And Swiss banks themselves took advantage of this. And this, of course, started to irk countries' like France, who started questioning how much they were losing in terms of tax revenues. It culminated in a raid in 1932 in Paris, police that had been tipped off by a whistleblower. They got a hold of this huge list of wealthy French residents, bishops, generals, senators, former ministers, the owners of newspapers, more than 1,000 customers that had been evading French tax. And it was explosive. They wanted some sort of cooperation with the Swiss authorities, who instead dug their heels in. The government instead, in 1934, introduced banking secrecy into law, essentially criminalising anyone who shared client information with anyone, especially foreign authorities.
1: It sounds like these laws, introduced way back in 1934, have now become really essential to the way that Switzerland works.
0: They've come to build an economy around this, 7.9 trillion Swiss francs worth of assets under management, nearly half of that belonging to foreign clients. This is a country that has actively pursued foreign wealth and is described as the grandfather of tax havens.
1: And one of the oldest and largest banks to be operating in that Swiss culture is one that most of us have probably heard of in passing, which is Credit Suisse. Tell me about that bank.
0: It was founded to fund the development of Switzerland's rail system in 1856, and since then has grown into this global bank with operations in over 50 countries, with employees around the world pursuing hundreds of thousands of clients.
2: Another thing that's pretty distinctive about this bank is that Swiss banks have their share of scandals, but Credit Suisse is particularly well featured. What kinds of controversies? What... It's kind of a difficult question to answer just simply because there's quite a lot of get through. I think probably the stuff that's most well known is some of the stuff relating to the Nazis and the Holocaust. Broadly, that's taken the form of two particular controversies. One is that Jewish victims of the Holocaust placed money in Swiss banks, but were then murdered. And several Swiss banks were very reluctant to then hand over the money they had banked to their surviving relatives. It was was deposited in good faith by parents or relatives. And this money is ours. It doesn't belong to the Swiss bankers. And on the flip side of that, Swiss banks also dealt with Nazis themselves. And fairly recently in 2020, there was an allegation made that a group thought it had found about 12,000 accounts relating to Nazis who had relocated to Argentina. That's not been resolved yet, that case. Okay, that's really bad. But as
1: you say, Credit Suisse wasn't the only bank to have had Nazis as clients. So tell me about some of the other
2: scandals specific to Credit Suisse that have shocked and stayed with you guys. Can I go first? Yeah, you start. <laughs> I mean, one of the earliest ones that we're aware of is that Ferdinand Marcos and his wife Imelda, Ferdinand Marcos ruled the Philippines for more than 10 years. We will uh, reform our society so we will without out the corrupt in our government. We must do so because a corrupt government is uh, an insult to the entire country. An almost extraordinary kleptocrat. The sums of money he's believed to have stolen from his own people over that time, and I think the most recent estimate was about 10 billion. I'd go to say even the majority of that money is still not being recovered. Several Swiss banks dealt with the Marcoses, but Credit Suisse was one of the first. It enabled them to open Swiss bank accounts in 1968 under fake names. What were the names? William Saunders and Jane Ryan. So these were fairly <laughs> sort of non-distinctive names. It's kind of simply inconceivable that the bank didn't know that there was something amiss here.
0: One that was actually settled in some capacity quite recently was the Mozambique tuna bond scandal. Credit Suisse organized about $1.3 billion worth of loans for Mozambique between 2012 and 2016. 24 boats bought to fish tuna hardly left the quay since 2013. They were bought with the knowledge of the government. They cost the Mozambican taxpayer more than 600 million euros. And this is only the tip of the iceberg. But a portion of that money went unaccounted for and it ended up that some of the money was siphoned off by some of the politicians involved and kickbacks were paid for... People, including bankers at Credit Suisse. And Credit Suisse ended up paying a £350 million fine to settle these allegations. And this was a huge scandal. I mean, the kind of problems that it caused for Mozambique as a result of those lost funds led to the IMF actually suspending its support for the country and sending the economy into a tailspin. These are not usually victimless crimes. Even when we're talking about sort of a high level bank, there are real consequences. Okay, that's a lot.
2: Is there anything else? So in about 2000, it was reprimanded by Swiss regulators for taking money from the family of Sani Abacha, who's the Nigerian military dictator, who again stole several billion dollars from his own country. Under the present circumstances, the survival of our beloved country is far above any other consideration.
0: I think one of the largest that sticks out in people's minds was the way Credit Suisse and UBS, to be fair, were involved in helping U.S. citizens evade tax. This came to light in around 2007 when a former UBS banker, Bradley Birkenfeld, breached Swiss banking secrecy laws and revealed that Swiss banks were quite aggressively pursuing wealthy clients in the U.S. and saying, essentially, we have ways to help you avoid U.S. taxes, which was illegal, of course.
2: Credit Suisse has pleaded guilty to helping some U.S. clients avoid paying taxes to the American government. It's to pay a fine of 1.8 billion euros. And in 2008-2009, Credit Suisse was fined $536 million for sanctions busting for Iran.
1: So far, we've got Nigerian dictators, Filipino kleptocrats, Mozambique tuna bonds, U.S. tax
2: evasion, Iranian sanctions busting and the Nazis. All Swiss banks have scandals. But whereas other banks seem to have had fewer scandals in recent years, I think it is probably fair to say that Credit Suisse has had more, particularly last year. And this is actually tracked in the share price as well. This is not just me being subjective. To take a few from last year alone... There was the collapse of Archegos, there was the collapse of Greensill.
1: Credit Suisse had provided financial backing to Greensill as it began
2: to struggle, a miscalculation that could cost its clients up to $3 billion. The Archegos collapse cost its lenders a collective $10 billion. And earlier this year, the chairman of Credit Suisse, Antonio Horta Osorio, just to put the cherry on the top of the cake, had to resign after it was revealed that he had decided COVID quarantine measures weren't really for him.
1: And Credit Suisse has also been in the news in the last couple of weeks for being involved in a criminal
2: trial in Switzerland. I mean, it's important to flag at this stage that the criminal proceedings are ongoing. It's a prosecution of the bank and one of its former employees. And the bank says it's innocent and that the employee is innocent too. They're going to contest the charges. But the allegations effectively are that the bank's compliance procedures were so feeble that a Bulgarian drug dealer was bringing in, via associates, bags of used notes, And effectively, that in accepting this money, it committed money laundering violations and helped the drug dealer to effectively harbour the proceeds of drug trafficking.
1: I'm slightly stunned by the array of wrongdoing you've just laid out. How does a bank survive all of that?
0: You know, there are few banks globally that would be able to sustain such a raft of penalties and demands. But this is a hefty institution. This is a behemoth in the banking world. And it seems as far as our research and our discussions with sources go, one suggestion seems to be that there was a focus on profits over probity.
1: Guys, knowing that the Swiss banking system has been used to commit so many crimes over the years, has there been any attempt to try to limit the secrecy that seems to be the thing that draws so many wrongdoers to actually put their money in Switzerland?
0: So it's quite interesting. Since the explosive allegations around Swiss banks assisting in US tax evasion came to light in 2007. There has been quite a push globally for Switzerland to start sharing tax information. First, unilaterally with the US. That started shortly after 2014. And that same year, the OECD think tank started organizing a group of about 50 countries to form a multilateral agreement to share banking information globally as part of efforts to crack down on tax fraud. And that information started to be exchanged in 2018. There was resistance from the Swiss at the time. They tried to suggest their own system, and they ended up signing up to what came to be known as the common reporting standard for exchange of information. The problem is, this has led to what a lot of critics have called the zebra strategy, where those that have signed up to the common reporting standard, mostly industrialized countries that have the capacity to gather and disseminate and store this kind of information, they are able to ensure that these banks are only accepting good actors. This is essentially white money, the white part of the zebra. Now, on the other hand, you still have about 90 countries that do not have active exchange agreements with Switzerland. Now, this list of 90 countries very closely overlaps with developing nations, some of the poorest, according to the UN. And it's people from those countries that are detailed in our leak. And it's people from those countries where you see this dark money, the dark part of the zebra, being stashed in Swiss accounts.
1: Kalina and David, you've been painting this really detailed picture of how Credit Suisse has been operating, all the way from 1934 until recently. But it does feel like, in recent years, the frequency of these scandals has increased and we haven't even gotten to this new leak. Have any of these recent scandals changed anything about Credit
2: Suisse's culture? So, Credit Suisse is currently in a very kind of contrite state of mind. It has described 2022 as its plan for it to be a kind of year of transition away from this kind of risky and slightly reckless bank into something more modest, more cautious, and more reliable. Sure term. So, 22 is a transition year
0: for the firm. But overall, I think it's a situation where we have a much more stable bank. We have a The
2: bank has apologized for the mess ups it's made recently and says it's going to change. However, what's also true if you look over all the scandals we've talked about is that the bank has repeatedly apologized for various mess ups and made promises to change. And this is going all the way back to 2000s. So they said after they were caught with the money for the abatches that they didn't want that to happen and they were going to change their systems. After the tax evasion scandal, they didn't want that to happen. They were going to change their systems. And I think what the data we're going to be telling you about today really calls into question is the extent to which those apologies and those promises for reform every single time were genuinely acted upon.
1: Coming up, a new leak showing Credit Suisse's problems go far deeper than previously reported.
0: Guys, we've been talking about
1: the many past scandals of Credit Suisse and together they tell this story about how this bank has been operating over the past few decades. But this leak you've got gives us a much deeper glimpse into the heart of this bank that's such a pillar of the financial system. So what did it show you?
0: Right, so we're faced with this huge trove of data, names and numbers. This is 30,000 Credit Suisse clients from all over the world holding about 18,000 accounts And you're seeing people emerging who were involved in torture, drug trafficking, money laundering, corruption, and other serious crimes. And, you know, we have reporters working with our partners in all of these countries who were able to really drill down into who these people were. You know, what were their crimes? When did these crimes come to light? And when did Credit Suisse really become aware of it?
1: And these accounts, are they old accounts? Are they accounts that are still active with the bank? What do you know about that?
0: So many of these range from the 1940s well into the most recent decade. But we know that at least two thirds were open since 2000s, and many are believed to still be open today.
1: Okay. And what about the value of these accounts? How much money are we talking about here?
2: I mean, we're talking very, very large sums of money. The average amount in each account is about 7.5 million Swiss francs. That works out to about 6 million pounds. But some of them go into the hundreds of millions. And there are even some with accounts in the billions.
1: Well, tell me about who some of these people are, some of these people who you found
2: were banking with Credit Suisse when maybe they shouldn't have been. Okay. One of the first people we looked at was a guy called Eduard Seidel. He's a German man. He used to be the country lead for Siemens, the big German manufacturing group in Nigeria, where he presided over, effectively, industrial bribery paying bribes to Nigerian politicians in order to help secure contracts. Seidel had about 54 million Swiss francs in one of his accounts. And according to the data, that account was open for years after the conviction and after Seidel was known to have pleaded guilty. We've asked Mr. Seidel how he can account for this money. He's declined to answer our questions. He says he pleaded guilty to the crimes back in 2008 and just wants to get on with his life. And we've asked Siemens. They said they don't know anything about this money. And who else is in there? We've also, in some of the really big money accounts, what we're looking at is people who are what we'd call politically exposed persons. That means they're either leaders, heads of state, prime ministers, officials, that sort of thing, or also they're family members. And I think probably two of the better known peps, as they're called, that we've got in our data, are Gamal and Allah Mubarak. They're the sons of Hosni Mubarak, who was the dictator of Egypt between 1981 and 2011. The accounts of the two Mubarak sons contain really mind-blowing sums of money. One of them is about 230 million Swiss francs Wow! as of 2010. Now, we're in touch with the lawyers for the Mubaraks and they say, look here, these monies are legal. You know, They were legitimately earned and there's been no finding in any court or any suggestion that this money is somehow the proceeds of corruption. At what point the bank asked itself... Does their relationship with their father have anything to do with where they're getting these sums of money is not clear. And I think it's one of those cases that really raises questions about what the bank's appetite for risk was here. Egypt was widely known to be a country where corruption was endemic. One of the most interesting and actually one of the most tragic really cases that we also see in the data is almost the story of the country of Venezuela. Venezuela's economy has effectively collapsed in what you might call slow motion over the last decade, and has actually the largest oil reserves in the world, and it was the linchpin of its economy. That's all run through a kind of state oil company called Pedevesa. Now, corruption has always been a big part of the problem for Pedevesa, and lots of people who have been involved in Pedevesa-related corruption schemes have been convicted. We've focused on one particular scheme involving businessmen who were paying bribes to PDVSA officials in exchange for inflated contracts. Credit Suisse appears to have given accounts to people on both sides of that scheme, both the businessmen who were paying the bribes and to officials who received bribes from those businessmen. This is, in a sense, a kind of microcosm of how corruption can ransack a country and how invariably that involves the money being removed from A developing country and deposited in a country like Switzerland, where it's very difficult to recover.
1: I mean, it's extraordinary to me to think that these characters were able to move hundreds of millions of dollars into Credit Suisse accounts without anybody asking questions. Like whose job is it at Credit Suisse to do that homework on potential clients?
0: So Credit Suisse is supposed to have stringent know your clients checks or what is usually just referred to as KYC. We know from a leaked report from 2017 that was commissioned by FINMA, which is the Swiss regulator, that Credit Suisse allegedly had a process in place where anytime anyone opens an account with you or an account comes onto your books, you check, are you a politically exposed person? Are you involved in a high-risk industry, gambling or mining? Are you from a high-risk country where you know that there is a higher probability of corruption? And if that is the case, you escalate those KYC checks. And for some of the most risky clients, you are meant to have a more senior person in your department sign off on that. Now, for some of the accounts that we're looking at, does that mean that you had senior people at Credit Suisse essentially opening the door to convicts, to human traffickers, to war criminal. This isn't just mistakes that would be done at the lower level based on what we're told, at least in this single report. Or if not, they were just blatantly ignoring their own rules.
1: Do we have any indication as to which of those two it might be?
0: No, what's interesting is that we do have people speaking to us We're not talking about the whistleblower who is involved in providing this data, but we're talking about another former Credit Suisse employee who's talking, again, about a deeply ingrained culture in Swiss banking, particularly at Credit Suisse, of looking the other way when it comes to problematic clients. And they said, quote, the bank's compliance departments were masters of plausible deniability. They said, never write anything down that could expose an account that is non-compliant and never ask a question you do not want to know the answer to. I mean, that's one person, but that's quite a damning view, albeit one that comes from a banker who no longer works there. And we have other former employees who we've spoken to who didn't want to be quoted, but have given us very similar accounts of how the bank and its senior employees operated over previous decades.
1: And these clients who we might call a little bit questionable, what proportion of the bank's activities do they make up? I mean, How widespread are these accounts that we're raising questions about today?
0: The bank points out that this is just a partial view of their 1.5 million private banking clients. We have about 30,000 in our data.
1: You know, if these accounts do represent such a small fraction of the bank's total business, it seems like it would be so much easier to just cut these questionable accounts. So why don't they just do that?
0: The reporters that have been working on this for the past year have talked to a variety of individuals, including some former employees. And it seems like the suggestion is that the fines, the slaps on the wrist to the bank, they were not so punitive that they outweighed the kind of profits that you would get from the fees that you'd get from these very wealthy clients.
1: So is the problem then less bad apples, individual bankers choosing to make bad decisions and instead this culture that when presented with a client who you should be asking questions about, bankers prefer not to. Or Let me put it this way. At what point do you stop saying this is a rogue set of bankers and start saying that this is a rogue bank?
0: There have been many instances in the past when we've gone through some of the problematic behavior of the bank over the past 20, 30, 40 years. There are many instances where the bank points to individual employees and says, we had nothing to do with this. This was their behavior. You know, our hands are clean. But I think what this data shows is that if you did not have a problematic culture, this perhaps would be bad apples in half a decade, one region in the world, one office. But we're seeing this spread across the whole world, across developing nations. And I think that raises questions about the culture around compliance, around checking problematic customers. It's very hard to suggest that this is pinned onto a few rogue bankers.
1: David, you told me that Credit Suisse seems to be showing contrition over the many scandals of the past few years and that 2022 was going to be what they call a transition year. But looking at this leak and what you found, it's difficult not to think that something's gone terribly wrong at Credit Suisse and that perhaps something more
2: than just a transition might be needed to root this out. I mean, it's clearly got a heck of a lot of transition to do. They've also made various comments to the effect that they want to now put risk management at the heart of their DNA, I think was the the phrase they used. problem with this is that they've been making similar pledges to that effect for the last 20 years. So do they mean it this time? Or is there something much, much more incurable about this. That's the question that you really have to start asking. And in the face of everything that you've been able to find here,
1: what has Credit Suisse said? I mean, what have they said in response?
0: So they've strongly rejected what they say are the allegations and inferences about their purported business practices. They've said, you know, the cases are predominantly historical and they're based on partial selective information taken out of context. But they've also said they can't comment on potential client relationships. They have said that actions have been taken in line with their policies and the regulatory requirements at the relevant times, and that any sort of related issues have already been addressed. They've also said that they have taken a series of significant additional measures over the last decade, including investment in combating financial crime and that they are strengthening their compliance and control frameworks.
1: Okay, but translate that for me. When it comes to someone like Alaa Mubarak or any of these other people that you've told me about, they don't deny that they banked with these people. Are they saying that basically it was okay to do that?
0: The problem is we have absolutely no response on individual clients. There's no way to know what kind of checks they had in place what decisions they made, even whether these accounts were frozen. There's just absolutely no information. And you have to rely on what we have found in our reporting and balance that against what the bank is claiming.
1: Is the reason why they didn't comment on those individual cases that you put to them because of those same banking secrecy laws?
0: I will say it's not very common that banks will comment on individual client accounts. But there is an added layer here which are the Swiss banking secrecy laws. Sharing any of that information is a criminal act.
1: One of the ideas that I keep coming back to here, Kalina, is you told us earlier that banking some of these people is not a victimless crime. Like The money in a lot of these accounts is money that should have been going to taxes, to public services. And because of that zebra effect that you talked about, of banking transparency applying to the developed world, but not so much to the developing world, a lot of this money that we're talking about has come from places that could really use the funds, some of which we think may have ended up in Swiss bank accounts. What does this leak, this whole story, tell you about the real losers from this banking secrecy system.
0: I think you're exactly right. The losers are the citizens of countries who lost out on tax revenues to some proportion. It's really hard when government's tax authorities do not have even a view of the kind of money they're missing to really make a calculation as to what is lost in the round. You know, is that roads not being fixed? Is that lights not being put up? Is it about people not having proper welfare programs it's almost really hard to make a proper assessment of what has been lost over decades
2: but there's another cost on top of that as well which is the kind of cost in public confidence in democracy and society why would you invest either monetarily or even in terms of kind of belief in your own sense of commitment to your own country if you know that whatever you put in will simply be stolen how can a country possibly remedy what's ailing it, if whatever people who do want to fix it contribute just vanishes. And the person who shared this data, you told
1: me that they are now potentially liable for prosecution under Swiss law because of what they've shown you, because of what they wanted the world to know. Do we know why they did it?
2: We know exactly what motivated the whistleblower in this case because they actually told us. They've given us a statement explaining why they've taken on this very, very significant degree of personal risk. Switzerland views banking whistleblowers as traitors. They're hated in their home country. And the person who wanted the world to know this said that effectively, they can't put up with it anymore, that this is a reverse Robin Hood stunt, that money is being taken from the poor and given to the rich. The system that they've created imposes a disproportionate financial and infrastructural burden On developing nations, perpetuating their exclusion from the system in the foreseeable future. This situation enables corruption and starves developing countries of much needed tax revenue. Now, they go on to say that they're fully aware that the fact of having a Swiss bank account in and of itself is not illegal and it's not evidence of illegality. But they go on, however, it is likely that a significant number of these accounts were opened with the sole purpose of hiding their holders' wealth from fiscal institutions and or avoiding the payment of taxes on capital gains. They don't just attribute it to Credit Suisse, they attribute it to Switzerland as well. They go on. While I am aware that banking secrecy laws are partly responsible for the Swiss economic success story, it is my strong opinion that such a wealthy country should be able to afford a conscience.
1: David, Kalina, thanks so much.
0: Thank you. you. That
1: was David Pegg, an investigative reporter with The Guardian, and Kalina Makortoff, The Guardian's banking correspondent. Thanks very much to them. You can read all the stories from this project called Swiss Secrets at theguardian.com. Before we go, Politics Weekly is changing. You can now enjoy the best of Guardian political reporting in two new podcasts. Join award-winning Guardian columnist John Harris and a cast of voices from up and down the country, as well as across the political spectrum, on Politics Weekly UK, out every Thursday from the 24th of February. And to keep hearing the latest analysis of US politics with Guardian columnist and former Washington correspondent Jonathan Friedland, search for Politics Weekly America on your favourite podcast app. New episodes of that will be every Friday from the 25th of February. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef and Sammy Kent. Sound design by Axel Cacutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Maithly Rao. Back tomorrow.